Welcome to the How to Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I am so honored to have Dr. Allison Nebus Davis. How are you today? Good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Oh, well, thanks for coming. I mean, you have an amazing website. Um, you're a therapist in Chicago, and I'll we'll ask you your story just to get started. Like, how did you get involved or interested in providing therapy? Because I think that takes a very special personality to actually speak to someone about really difficult situations. And we're going to talk about your buzzwords and things that you have offered up on your website because you have a lot of information. I think it's a lot of it is very helpful for people. Maybe they haven't thought of things about the way you kind of present them before. So how did you start with um, your interest in therapy? Yeah, so I am kind of, I was that weird kid that just always knew I wanted to be a psychologist. Um, I had a really powerful experience myself in therapy as a kid. And I don't even now, I don't really remember much about that experience. I just remember thinking, I want to do what she does. And I just thought it was so cool that one person could help somebody else work through their stuff and feel different and better. And then they get to go live their life. And so I just, I just always wanted to do that. I went into college knowing that's what I wanted to do. I don't even know if I'd be good at anything else. Um, yeah. And so just, you know, undergrad and graduate and all that stuff. And I honestly think that being a psychologist is the greatest privilege. I love it. And I feel lucky that what I do is so rewarding. Absolutely. So do you have a particular area of interest or certain areas that you like to speak about or work with patients on? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I, I get that question and I used to early in my career feel pressure to like have a, a good response or a label. And now I just say, I really just help people work through their stuff. So <laughs> all of us have stuff. Um, so if a human has stuff, then they're likely, you know, going to be somebody that we can work together. Absolutely. That, that being said, I think that I am a good fit for people who just want to live healthier and more meaningful lives. I think, and that's one of the things I try to really put out there on my website is that therapy doesn't need to be a last resort when we are just struggling and feeling like we cannot tread water any longer. Mm-hmm. And so I do think, um, that's a big part of kind of attracting people, but also the message that I put out there is um, thinking about well-being as opposed to something's wrong. Right. And, and I remember I'm a huge fan of positive psychology um, where we're looking at how are people thriving? So what are they doing right? And so I think that's really kind of cool is, you know, kind of turning traditional psychotherapy upside down instead of trying to fix the negative and bring it to a baseline. But let's see, well, what do we need to do to help people thrive, especially when we invest in our kids and different things like that? I think that's fascinating. Um, So when you say people have stuff, what is, do you find one tool that you like to just kind of gravitate towards to help people work through their problems or situations? You know, I think that there's a cliche that just fits, and that is our goal is to, I think as humans, have as many tools in our toolbox as possible. Mm-hmm. I think you can't really build a strong house if you just have one or two tools in your toolbox. And so I think there are kind of some, I don't know, heavy hitters or things that I tend to gravitate towards. So a lot of uh, mindfulness, a lot of helping people identify what's going on, what's not working, um, 
a lot of healthy self-talk, kind of being mindful of our thoughts and how they shape how we feel. I do a lot with gratitude. That's a huge part of my website, which you probably see, and also my practice. Mm. Um, so I, if there were one thing, you know, this right. would be easy. I think oh. clients would love one thing. Uh, Absolutely. But yeah, usually, usually a good mix of stuff. So when you say mindfulness, what does that mean? Because it's a, it's a term that's coined a lot. I think yes. it means different things for, to, for you and your clients or people you speak to. What does that mean, mindfulness? Can you give us a definition and how we could use that in our lives to make things healthier or better? For sure, because I think you alluded to mindfulness is a big buzzword right now. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're starting to see it thrown around a lot and maybe a little bit diluted. So my favorite kind of working definition of mindfulness is that mindfulness means bringing our attention to the present moment with an open and non-judgmental attitude. So mindfulness is bringing our attention to the present moment with an open and non-judgmental attitude. So essentially, mindfulness means paying attention to the right now. So you could put the word mindful in front of almost any verb, and that's a thing. So mindful breathing, mindful walking, mindful dishwashing, any of that. It just means you're doing that thing, and you have got all your focus and your attention on that. Hmm. So that's a really good way to put it in front of a verb. I like that because it really makes you think, okay, like I can walk, right? I can go for a walk. But if I'm so busy thinking about, geez, I got to get taxes done or geez, my kid has an appointment or geez, I got to get this done. You may have just walked by a wonderful, beautiful environments, you know, waterfalls and cause there's trails here that I'm in Washington state and great stuff. You might've missed a neighbor cause you just were so focused. You don't even see people walk by, but if it's mindful walking or mindful eating, mindful conversations with someone at the dinner table, cause I really am, it's find it interesting cause I have three grown kids. And so, you know, tell text messaging and stuff. It's just that part of that generation. So we have rules, you know, put the phone down, but if you look and you go out to eat and people are talking while they're there's someone right in front of them. And I'm just like, this is so sad. Yes, there um, was a, a study that looked at, I think it said that humans spend nearly 47% of our time focusing on something other than what we're doing. Oh my. Which is bonkers, right? Like 47, almost 50% of the time that we're doing something, we're not even there and paying attention. Right. So it's scary to think of how much we miss in our own lives and how much like data and information that would help us live healthier lives. We are not even paying attention to. Or bring you joy, right? Bring you joy and peace. So how do you take someone who lives in the world that we live in with all of this data flying at us, you know, there's technology is great, but at the same time, it's detrimental to so many aspects. Like I don't even own a TV for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> I, wow. I have enough of it. Oh yeah. It's been almost about 18 months, maybe a little over that. And it's just been a tremendous benefit. Um, the husband misses his football, but I'm like, just, you can go to a neighbor's or something. But anyway, so those are the things that we've tried to implement, but how do you bring that in front of someone and say, okay, I need you to be more mindful. Is there a practice? What, how do we start 
un, you know, undoing our bad habits and bringing in the goods. So for me first, I really highlight for people why, why it benefits us and why we need it. I think if we don't know that as humans, and maybe that's just me, that I'm kind of stubborn and I just want to do something because someone told me to, I want to know how it works. Mm-hmm. I think we're much more likely to buy in. And so, um, and I learned that I did physical therapy years ago and they were making me do these home exercises and they knew I wasn't doing them. And they asked why not. And I sort of said, you're giving me these leg exercises for a back injury. And they like smugly, you know, rolled the skeleton over and then kind of demoed and then said, watch what happens. And I, I saw, and I was like, okay, I get it. Okay. I'll do it. Like, cause (laughs) I need to know why. And so I really start by helping people understand the research behind mindfulness. So we know that when we are practicing mindfulness regularly, we see usually it's associated with a reduction in depression, a reduction in stress and anxiety. It increases our attention, focus, optimism, quality of relationships. Like there's so much good research So sometimes I'll I'll ask people, if there were a way that you could get all of that stuff and it were free with almost no side effects, would you do it? Of course, everyone's like, yeah. So it's like, okay, then you are open to practicing mindfulness. I think that's where we start Mm -hmm. in helping people even buy in. And I'm sure you see that in your work as a physician. It's like, well, it's not buying in. They're not going to they're not going to do what, what, you know, you propose. Right. Absolutely. So that's the first piece. And then usually I start by teaching people mindful breathing. Okay. So can you show me? Yeah. This is so right. exciting. You're, you're like interested in it. <laughs> Let's For do it. I really sell this. <laughs> All um, right. Let's so do mindful it. mindful breathing. So most people, so remember, we put the word mindful in front of anything. And it just means we're bringing all our attention and all our awareness to that thing. So mindful breathing means we're focusing all of our attention and awareness on the breath. Okay. So most people think that a mindful breath looks and sounds like, and I tell people that's not a mindful breath. That's an exasperated sigh. It's (laughs) not going to help you. So with mindful breathing, we sort of pay attention to four things. We want to pause, but and I'm giving you the sped up version. I love it. No, that's great. We want to pause between your inhale and your exhale. We teach in through the nose, out through the mouth. We want to make the breath audible, meaning we want to hear it. And we do that because making the sound and then listening to it helps us actually pay attention. And then the last piece is when we do mindful breathing, we really want to use our bellies or our diaphragms to kind of uh, think about them like a balloon. They're expanding on the inhale and then deflating on the exhale. Okay. So ideally, if someone's going to do mindful breathing or if anybody's listening or watching and kind of doing this in the moment, you sort of want to encourage them to kind of sit back in their chair and really just start by feeling their body, just kind of noticing their feet on the floor, you know, just paying attention to your body. And then you just notice your breath a little bit more. 
And then you would take a slow, deep breath in. Pause, and then a slow exhale. Nice and slow. And that is one full mindful breath. Cool. It's almost like the four, seven, eight breathing. Yes. Um, yes. I teach that to patients because um, when you get patients in family practice, they could be for a cold. It could be mm -hmm. for suicidal ideation. <laughs> yes. You know, it could go from one extreme to the other. So there are certainly tools. And I really like that you, um, that pause because it makes us think the next thing is exhale because it makes you stop. It's not just this automation. Yes. And that's what I like about the four and eighth breathing too. Yes. Um, and, uh, so how many times do you have someone do that? Or is there a length of time or is, what have you found to be beneficial? Yeah. Everybody wants to know, like, how do I do this the right way? Um, <laughs> so the research is not super consistent. Like what's the minimum amount of time. Mm -hmm. So I kind of present people with two options. You can go the route of meditation, which is a form of mindfulness. But I think what we, to me, is more doable is to think about what we call micro practices. Hmm. So remember you talked about, or like putting that word mindful in front of anything. Mm -hmm. So what I encourage someone is do two to three mindful breaths before you eat anything. Hmm. Anytime you, let's say, get in your car and you put your car in park, sit back and do two mindful breaths. You tuck in your kids at night. When you walk out of their room, do one mindful breath. So, you know, if you're gonna, the first bite of your lunch, eat mindfully, these kinds of things. And I think that helps it feel less daunting to people. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, that takes 30 seconds, I can do that. But do I wanna carve out 20 minutes to do a meditation? That feels more overwhelming for people, I think. And I will tell you, um, before I moved to Washington, I lived in uh, Florida. Mm -hmm. And in the clinic there, I had one patient, of course, they were coming to see us. Um, as you may know, my, my big thing is a plant-based diet and getting people to move to a healthier diet and along with that other things. And her blood pressure, she was very um, high anxiety individual. Blood pressure was... I don't know. I think it was like one upper one sixties. Mm -hmm. And I taught her the four, seven, eight breathing, her blood pressure dropped. We literally checked her blood pressure that was elevated. We did the four, seven, eight breathing. It dropped 15 points in literally just the time it took to do four cycles. And in case anyone wants to know, that's basically it's breathing in over four seconds, holding your breath for seven out over eight. And you do four cycles of that. And I, she couldn't, she couldn't believe it. I was like 15 points. That's better than any blood pressure pill you yes. can give. So it was really, um, I think for me, I mean, I understood that it could do a lot to calm people down. I didn't understand. I mean, it would obviously have some physiologic effects, but I didn't understand such a whopping drop in your blood pressure and the stress. I mean, it was just a really mm -hmm. eye-opening experience for me and much less heard as the patient, but it just it was a reaffirming, you know, we're on the right track. That this is, you're exactly right, the mindfulness practice. So how, how do you help with people who are, let's say, because I, I get a lot of patients who, you know, they're, I see them for, let's say, a urinary tract infection, and they come in, they're seeing, they're, they have a different primary care doctor, and they have, um, they're all on 
you know, SSRIs like Prozac and Celex and Lexapro and studies show that actually exercise works just as well over four months as well as Zoloft. So, I mean, they're, how do you help someone with, let's say, the anxiety component? Because I think that seems to be what everyone is just so stressed about everything all the time. Yes. Yeah, that's anxiety is probably the number one reason people come to my website. Um, mm. Worry and fear and just that sort of constant anxiety. So trying to think how to give a lovely <laughs> So a couple things. I mean, this is certainly kind of operating from a more cognitive behavioral perspective, mm -hmm. but I think helping when we're anxious, I think everything just feels so frenzied and tense and rushed that we often just aren't even aware what we're thinking, what we're feeling, what's happening in our body. So that's where kind of mindfulness really does come in as a helpful piece. Like mm -hmm. you can't really do much with anything if you're not first aware of what's going on with you. So that's kind of one piece, but I think the next is helping people understand that our thoughts are not always the truth. Huh. And I love that phrase. I use it a lot in my own life. Our thoughts are not always the truth. When we're anxious, you know, our brains are so good at predicting how things are going to go poorly and just the worst case scenario. Um, and that's a sort of survival mechanism that our brains are wired for. We used to need it a long time ago. It doesn't really help us anymore, but you know, we've held on to it really tight. Yeah. So yeah, just looking at what are the thoughts and, and how accurate is that? Um, sometimes I use the idea of approaching your anxiety like a scientist. So a scientist really looks at all the available data points, not just the two that kind of sound good, right? They sort of take an unbiased, methodical approach. They don't have to ignore data points, but they're looking at all of them and giving each data point kind of equal weight. And so maybe an example of this that is a little bit humorous, but I have a little brother. We're very far apart in age. He is just my little boo-boo and I just love him so much. I'm very overprotective. And so if I know that he's traveling, I always say, text me when you get there. Because apparently he's not, I don't know. I think he can't manage it. I don't know. So <laughs> I found that if he doesn't text back and I know he should have been there by now, my brain's default is to think, oh my God, he's dead on the side of the road. Something terrible happened. And I think a lot of people will try to kind of say, oh, he's fine. But we don't know that, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll often tell clients, well, it's, it's possible he's dead on the side of the road but let's approach this like a scientist and let's look at all the other possibilities. Mm -hmm. I got his phone charger. Maybe he's on the phone. Maybe he's practicing mindful driving. Maybe, you know, he's already at his destination and he's having so much, like there's so many possibilities and our brains aren't going to go there naturally. We have to really direct our attention to see those other possibilities. Now, you're going to think this is bizarre. Um, so what if you, <laughs> um, if you have someone who did have something happen, cause I, I am a mom of three 20 year old something kids, 24, 22, and the little one's 19. Um, 
not so little anymore. He's bigger than me. Um, but my brother was killed on the side of the road at 22 mm. and was hit by a car. And that was almost 20 years ago. And so I am just like you. So when they don't call, they're like, I'll send my youngest Gabriel back to Colorado because home for spring break. He mm-hmm. broke his leg, running and ran into a tree, snowboarding. So I'm like, there's these little things that add to that. How do you have someone who had something like that? Because I tend to be the exact the same way. I'll have a dream about, for example, I dreamed that um, my daughter disappeared and I'll wake up instantly. I don't care if it's two in the morning. I'm texting. Are you okay? I know this is crazy, but mom's freaking out. And so how do you start that because you, you have this valid thing, something happened, but now you have this extra sense, but someone can always say, but well, something did happen. I mean, what do you do with that? Cause that is, that's really tough. Cause in my own brain, I understand the objective. Come on. You know what I mean? Being realistic, but how do you deal with those emotional bursts of, you know, doesn't fear. make sense. Yeah. Fear. It is fear. It is, it yeah. is fear. Absolutely. How do you deal with something like that? I think part of, and I'm going to use the word trauma, but I don't necessarily mean like our clinical definition, right? Something, Mm -hmm. something major that kind of shakes up how you see the world and and how Mm -hmm. secure things feel. That's one of the biggest challenges because trauma puts this giant, you know, spotlight on a data point, right? It, mm-hmm. it highlights like, no, but I did have that worst case scenario thing happen. And all of a sudden, even though it was one data point, it all of a sudden has so much more weight to it. Right. So that, that is one of the challenges when someone's been through something like that is in their brain, it's like, no, it always is that way. Right. And so there isn't an easy fix for that, but I think it's helping people kind of process through that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that's why I actually recently did a video on this where I say, I don't encourage positive thinking, right? If you wake up at two in the morning and you say something terrible happened, and let's say I were your friend and I was there, I wouldn't say, oh, Lord, you don't, it's fine. Because I don't know it's fine, right? I I don't know where your daughter is. Mm -hmm. And to get you to try to believe that will feel ridiculous. Mm. So I think it's being able to acknowledge the possibility that that worst case scenario could happen and acknowledge the way that that feels and acknowledge how else it could possibly work out. Right. And then I guess too, kind of what I like to do too is, um, cause it's in the military, I've been all around the world, different places, different things. And, and as a physician as well, I think, you know, when you bring up the word trauma, I think that's a great word because, um, family practice, not so much, but if you have ER doctors, surgeons and people who are dealing with very life and death situations, but even still just the burnout because physicians have one of the highest suicide rates of any, um, profession and which breaks my heart because it's in, Tend, these people tend to be the most compassionate comparing people because anyone who's willing to go through all the years of training and sacrifice and the debt <laughs> just to become a physician. Um, I think that they are already more sensitive individuals, not all, trust me, yeah. there are a few. <laughs> so, um, but I think that's right. It's almost like micro trauma on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So as you're hearing, you're absorbing, you can't, I don't think you peel yourself away emotionally from every experience that you hear or share with a patient when they come in and speak to you. Um, And so it's just one thing after another, after another. So how do you, 
what are the tools you give to someone who is in maybe a position or for example, you know, I dealt with a lot with soldiers, obviously PTSD when I was overseas and hearing people talk about, you know, I saw my buddy get blown up. You know, these are ext- obviously extremes, but what, are there any tools because a trauma is really, it's relative, right? Because, you know, um, I heard a story and for the life of me, it has left me her name. She's a general now. Um, she had, was a pilot, um, a helicopter pilot in the Middle East, got shot down, was taken hostage. She had broken arms. She was raped. But when she got back, she had such a resilient spirit um, in that she processed it differently. So how do you help people? Is there a way to provide tools to help someone yeah, to do know, that? I don't think we are... I don't think we are taught very much about how to feel our feelings. And of course, that sounds like a psychologist would say that, like how to feel our feelings. But I find that most people have a very limited emotional vocabulary. And and I would encourage, so, you know, people can do this test mentally. So I want you to sort of think about every emotion you felt in the last week, two weeks, month, doesn't matter the time. So kind of list those in your head. And I found that most people tend to give me a combination of this. Happy, sad, mad, good, bad, fine, anxious, pissed off, frustrated, stressed. Hmm. And then they look at me like, what, what else would there be? Right. And so in reality, you know, there's so much nuance and subtlety to our emotions. But when we don't we don't have the vocabulary for that. It's really hard to capture what we're feeling. So somewhere on my website, I have sort of an emotional vocabulary list. So there's a difference between feeling anxious, worried, concerned, bothered, afraid, terrified, confused, um, vulnerable. I mean, this is taking a lot of practice. So my emotional Mm -hmm. vocabulary has gotten pretty good, but when we can learn like what we're feeling and how to talk about it, I think that there's enormous power in that. Hmm. It's almost like a colors, right? So, you, you know, from going from a very, what's the word they call it? Primary colors to having a variety of the mini mixtures. So that I'm a, I love to draw and different things. So that's exactly what you're talking about is you're giving less weight to one emotion or another based on, I guess, how you're processing it or, I don't know how the best way to describe it, how you're framing the situation. Or are you just saying everything, every emotion is equal. It's just different. I, I don't know yeah, how to describe you know, that. One thing I try to, you know, discourage is this good and bad emotions. Hmm. Emotions are emotions. And I do think, you know, we can sort of categorize things, not always, but it's like painful emotions and not painful emotions. I think that helps people, but yeah, no emotions are, off limits or are bad. But I think we get the message along the way that if I feel this, I'm going to fall apart. Hmm. If I acknowledge that I feel betrayed, I'm going to lose it. If I, if I acknowledge that I'm devastated, I'll just, I won't be able to keep going. And so Hmm. I think there's power in, in helping people acknowledge what they're feeling, which in some ways is kind of a form of mindfulness, right? Mm -hmm. being aware of the present moment, kind of what you're feeling. Um, And so it's like, that's really the first step, I think, in in all of us kind of working through our stuff, whether it's big like trauma or whether it's just on kind of a daily basis when you're leaving the office and feeling blah, it's like, well, 
Blah's a good start. I'm glad you're at least you notice you feel blah, but let's let's tease that apart. Huh. What is it? Is it I'm feeling, yeah, discounted? Am I feeling drained? Am I feeling depleted? Like what what am I feeling? Because that will give you a great start on, okay, so what do I need to do to kind of take care of that? And you had mentioned earlier speaking to yourself, right? So you have been you're a big fan of talking to yourself, which I think is great because someone else um a few years ago, another psychologist I had, a friend of mine, she spoke to the process of speaking or looking at yourself as a third person observer mm-hmm. and then asking those questions as to why would you be feeling that, Lori? And today, Lori, why would you be blah? Is this a feeling that <laughs> has any benefit? You know, just that process of, so it's kind of, I like that idea of taking the emotional said, you know, I feel, let's say I did something wrong as a, as a parent. And now I feel guilty or I feel bad. And now I feel guilty for feeling guilty. You know what I mean? So you can beat yourself up over the emotions without truly being, I don't know, helping yourself. So, yeah. and, and it might be that you're natural because you're a human. Again, our brains are wired to focus on the negative. So let's say you, yeah, you, you, you lose your temper and, and you feel kind of guilty and, and ashamed and regretful and you, you notice that your brain's naturally going to be like, oh, why'd you do that? You suck. You're the worst mom ever. Like your brain's just going to do that, especially if you kind of lean towards the more perfectionist type A personality. And so mm-hmm. it's great to acknowledge I feel regretful and guilty and ashamed. And then we can add in this piece of saying, okay, hold on. You are a human. You made a mistake. That was not your finest moment. You can't take it back, but you've had 10 other shining moments of a parent this week. So, you know, that's not, that's not bad. You're at above 90%. You're doing okay. You've acknowledged, you know, you said you were sorry and let's move forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, you literally kind of like saying that when people first start, they usually have to do it out loud, but kind of being able to say that almost as a way to talk back to that really critical, harsh or judgmental part of your brain. Mm -hmm. I guess also, if you could imagine if a friend had done the same thing, whatever the circumstance, oh, I ate the donut on my diet. I should have eaten that donut. Gosh, now I'm going to gain 10 pounds and I might as well just give up. Hold, you know, stop the horses. Let's look at the reality. What are the, what are those consequences? Yes. All right. So, you know, I think that just bringing, like you said, mindfulness to your thoughts almost, you know, it's, it's mindful activity, but thinking is also an active thought. So I think mindful thoughts, like what you're saying, what you were talking about is how do you speak to yourself? What are those thoughts? What are they doing? Um, is there one particular, I know some people really, you know, they talk about journaling, they talk about, uh, therapy. Is there one particular practice that let's say someone could listen to this and start instituting in their own life to maybe bring about more mindfulness, but you also mentioned gratitude and you mentioned, some of your buzzwords, intentionality and authenticity. Is there anything in particular that you find that's really helpful for a lot of people, like a broad range yeah. of individuals will be helpful, find helpful? All right. So I'm going to give you two things and I'm telling you two things in case I forget I have a second thing. Okay. I'll remind you. <laughs> okay. So the first is making time to pause. And that sounds like, oh yeah, yeah I get it. I get it. Pause. We move through our lives so rapidly 
And we go from one thing to the next, right? So you make your kids lunches, you take a shower, you get in the car, you go to work, you're late, you open your email, you go to a meeting. Like we're just constantly switching back and forth. And our brains are really incredible. And so every time that we're sort of switching, our brain is kind of thinking 10 steps ahead to prepare us, but it's also still wrapping up what we just did. So again, it's like, we're not even all there because we're thinking about the thing we're going to do. We're thinking about what we just did. And so I encourage people around transitions. Anytime you're changing activities to stop, and usually that's a great spot for that mindful breath and to just be still for like 10 seconds. Because everything else you do will be better, more effective, more helpful if you're coming from a place where you're kind of slowed down, more present, and more intentional. A mindful pause. A mindful pause. There you go. So you know that if you sat down to eat and you're like halfway through and you're like shoveling it in your mouth and you're like, what did I, what did, what did I just eat? <laughs> Like what just happened? Well, maybe you don't do that, but oh, I, I have. I've had my moments. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, but what if before we start eating, we take a mindful pause? Hmm. Not, it doesn't need to be longer than, you know, 15, 10 seconds. But that means that everything else we do will be so much more helpful. Often when I give this homework or when people kind of read about this type of video on this on my site, people are like, yeah, I love this idea. And then life happens and they're like, oh, I, I didn't pause. So I tell people, you're going to need to set some reminders, you know, so put some alarms on your phone, put a sticky note on your lunch, put something on your laptop, something that is a visual reminder to actually pause because it's not in our default. So if you just leave it up to your brain, it's not going to remember to do that. Almost like a stop sign, right? So you just write the word stop on it. You get in your car before you drive. Yes. Stop sign. And and you can, you know, speaking of stop signs, you can take a turn at 50 miles an hour, but like, it's not going to go very well. So sure, you can sit down and, you know, start banging out emails without pausing, but it's going to go a little bit better if you slow down, pause, and then turn. You know, you almost could do that too when you first get up, right? So you, before you even, you know, people immediately, I got to look at my cell phone because, you know, apparently the world ended while you slept, you know, so then those are the things or that email is just got to be open or that Facebook notification is bugging me, you know, almost like you have to take some time to pause before you even start your day, right? You're mindful. I love this whole mindful thing before the verb. That's going to be my new thing. (laughs) So even like mindful getting out of bed, right? We just swing our legs over and like to the the bathroom. It's like, just swing your legs over, feel your feet on the floor, feel your legs on the side of the bed. Notice your back up straight. Just pay attention to how you feel. And then get up. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, that was 10 seconds. But those kind of micro practices, that works out that mindfulness muscle. And, and it doesn't matter how you're working out that muscle. It's the same muscle and it gets stronger with use. Yeah, that's really good. I like that. Hmm. Okay, so that's... So that's yeah, I was going to say. Go. And- okay. You're keeping me accountable. Okay, good. And <laughs> the second would be to develop a daily gratitude practice. 
this is one of the most life-changing things I've done in my own life. I repeat it so much on my website. Um, so here's the deal. Most of us get into a gratitude rut. So if you were to ask people randomly today, like, what are you grateful for? Most people say like my family, my health, my job, like, you know, the, the heavy hitters. It's like, okay, but we kind of get saturated with that. So there was a cool study, and I'm paraphrasing, that looked at two groups of people. And one group, they kind of measured their level, I think, of happiness. And they said, okay, you have homework. We want you to name three things every day that you're grateful for. It can be whatever you want. Name them. Come back. We're going to measure your level of happiness. Okay, great. The second group, very similar, but they said, we want you to name three new things a day. So you can't say what you said yesterday and you can't say what you said a week ago. It has to be unique to this day. Come back in a couple weeks and we'll measure your level of happiness. Okay, any guesses what the study found? Well, you're definitely gonna be more happy, right? Because your mind's gonna focus yes. on the things that you bring to mind. It's like yeah. buying a new car, right? So you're looking and researching and you find, you know, I think I want a Subaru and then all, if everybody has a Subaru. So yes. I, I'm assuming that they're gonna be more happy. <laughs> yes, and in fact, that first group didn't really show any significant changes in happiness, hmm. which is interesting. So this gratitude practice of naming three things every single day, they have to be unique and new to that day, um, is, has been shown to be very effective in helping us feel better because it's training our brain to notice and name the good stuff. Hmm. So an example, I, I cross a, a train track every morning on my way to work. And so I have a habit of running a little bit tardy. It's a <laughs> work in progress. Um, and so if I, you know, if I'm driving and then the track, you know, I can see it's coming down and it makes the noise in my head, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, this stupid train. Like my brain will naturally kind of complain about that. But I noticed on the mornings there's no train and I make it through, through no problem oh, my brain doesn't even give it a second thought. Hmm. It's like, what's wrong with that, right? My brain will complain when this goes wrong, but when it goes well, I don't even pay attention. Hmm. And so gratitude is really the active process of noticing those things, looking for, naming them, and noticing them. Hmm. So it could almost be, I mean, it could be anything, right? It could be, like you're saying, you made it across the track without yes. being late. Um, it could be, I mean, a variety of things. I mean, the sun's out today. The You notice a pretty flower. You notice, I, I tend to like nature. And so those are the things that I would, I would tend to gravitate towards. Have you, when you have patients who you work with or clients that you work with and they instill this, what are some of the things that they say that has changes that, so there's this ripple effect, right? So you're more grateful. Did they mention other things that change in the other parts of their life? Do they start doing other things differently? They start doing other things differently because they start seeing things differently. Hmm. So they see their relationships differently. They might see their job different. They might see their body different if they struggle with, you know, self-image. They might see their own performance better. 
And there's all sorts of little tricks and um, like challenges you can put on this gratitude thing. Um, so, you know, every time you acknowledge something like you're grumbling about something, challenge yourself to name two things that are going well. So you can put lots of spins on this, but yeah, it, it's a way of seeing things more accurately. Mm-hmm. You're not making things up, but you're seeing what's actually there. Mm-hmm. And it, it's pretty, I, I read the research, and for me, my clients hear me talk about the research all the time. Because to me, like, that's what's guiding our work. We want to know everything on my website is, you know, evidence-based. Mm-hmm. And so I, I tried this because the research said this worked. And I'm like, okay, this seems silly, but all right, I'll try it. And about three weeks into my own gratitude practice, I had a moment where I was standing in front of my refrigerator looking for breakfast. And I literally thought, isn't this amazing that I have a, a thing that keeps my food fresh for me? And I like heard myself and was like, oh my God, this gratitude thing. Like I've lost my mind. I've had a refrigerator my whole life. It's not that big of a deal, mm-hmm. but I found myself all of a sudden noticing that. You know, and it's, it's funny because it, and this can come around in different ways. So we did a mission trip about, it was in March of 2016. So about two years ago and to rural Africa. So we went to Uganda. And so it was 22 of us. I brought four of our five of our family and um, went with our church. And so I was the only physician there. But when we were there, we flew into Entebbe, which is the capital. And then we drove about two hours west into rural Africa. Okay, no running water, no electricity, nothing. And um, we lived in structures. They were building an orphanage there. And so we held, I held a clinic there for four days. We brought a thousand pounds of um, medical supplies. I mean, and honestly, just getting through customs in this foreign country, there's a, there is a new movie coming about, out, um, about these hostage situation in Entebbe. I think that's what it's called. Something seven days in Entebbe. I was like, Hey, that's the same airport. And so, (laughs) you know, it's really interesting, you know, I've been to South Africa or to South America, even to the Middle East, you go to these different places, but even after spending two weeks there, um, we actually had, you know, a bed and stuff because we were living in the newer buildings they had built. Um, but we had, we had to, they had to go to a well and it was a half a mile into the African jungle. We ran out of water one night. So we're trucking in midnight to get water and you have a whole new attitude or, um, appreciation. So coming home, one, just showering. Wow. That was, <laughs> that was remarkable and not smelling. And so our washing machines, you know, but you're exactly right. You look at things and actually that's really accelerated you know, I, and I, I don't know if, I don't think I mentioned um, how I found you was um, an article that was shared from becomingminimalist.com. I'm on their email list and they had shared one of your articles um, that we can talk about too, if you want. Um, but the, the cool thing was just that kind of accelerated my whole thought of what are things, you know, what are those things that I, I want to do? What are those things that are really important? And, um, so getting rid of things and, you know, dragging my poor husband along for this journey. And he finally, he appreciates it at the end of the cycle. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting transition. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right, right? It's just looking at things, but then you almost feel guilty. You have to process that just for being in the first world country. But um, people there are happier. Um, not that I'm saying that they, they don't have struggles and they certainly, you know, their health, different things but they find joy in the simplest things. And I think their relationships with one another um, 
is really what I was amazed by was just the, um, the joy they had with just being in the presence of someone, I guess, is that the best way to describe it? Um, so that was just really intriguing to me because like you said, we rushing through our day, we're doing stuff and we ignore, especially if you're, if you're a mom like me, who's the little ones just left home. So now we're empty nesters. We've been married almost 25 years and I'm going, well, where did that go? You know, and you think back of all those times I wish I would have spent more mindful parenting and enjoying this moment. I certainly tried. Um, but I think for younger parents out there or anybody who's in a relationship with anything, just that mindful moments with each other is so key. And I think that that's where you find the happiness, at least for me, um, in relationships, but yeah, I, I totally get it. And I was thinking you were saying, you know, this, I think so many of us hear this idea. I should be mindful. I should be grateful. Mm-hmm. And I really encourage us to think about practice mindfulness, mm-hmm. practice gratitude, because that idea of, oh, I want to, I want to be, you know, be more present or, or be more grateful. That sounds, I think, so passive, right? I think it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I should just feel that. The mm-hmm. way to feel that is by practicing and doing and being very active. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think sometimes that's a distinction I really try to highlight for people is you may not be that way naturally. That's okay. Most of us aren't. But with some intention and practicing that, you can absolutely do that. Mm-hmm. Uh- I think you're exactly right. And, and you can bring that into, if you have a faith or a spiritual context, you can bring it into your prayer life or your meditation and dwell on those things too, those blessings. You know, I, I would consider each of those things blessings, but yeah, that's really cool. So can we talk about the article that you wrote? It was the, you have enough or you're enough, oh, that type of thing. It was yeah. that article. And so um, it really struck a chord because um, my situation growing up was less than, ideal. And so, um, it's really interesting how your childhood experiences shape your personality or shape your thoughts of what you have to do for acceptance or, um, creating a bond with someone. So part of that was, you know, certainly I've done well as a physician, but I want to provide things and create an easier path for people. Um, that's part of my, response to the, some of the things that happened to me when I was younger. And I understand that, but it's part of that was, you know, I don't need all this stuff and they don't need all this stuff. My kids don't have to have every toy that they say, Oh, they want to do this, or they don't have to, you know, be in every sport or they don't have to be in band lessons and this and that, you know, it's okay. You have enough. So can you tell us a little bit about that article and what spurred it? Yeah. So I, in the last person, um, I would ever expect to be into minimalism and I use the word conscious consumption. I like that idea around intentionality. Mm-hmm. So conscious consumption, just being really more thoughtful and aware, mindful of what we're consuming. So mm-hmm. in my family, um, you know, some families it's food, but in my family, it was, it was, shopping and little things that's how we we celebrated you know it was like oh you you, I don't know you got a good grade on a test like my mom and I would go shopping or just it was like I just shopping was just a big part of like I'd have the cute little thing or it wasn't even about the thing it was just that act of of shopping anyway so 
that's something I, I knew probably, especially in graduate schools, I was taking out loans. I, I knew this, this consumption thing probably needed some attention, but I think I was not ready to put in the work for that. And so in the last couple of years, I started to be a lot more aware of, of the, first of all, that, that just unconscious spending and some of those patterns. But again, like this is where mindfulness comes in is, you know, when I, I started to get more serious about it when my husband and I were trying to buy a house, right? So it was like, okay, like I was on fellowship, like <laughs> I was not bringing in the bucks. Mm-hmm. So it was like, okay, I really had to make more thoughtful decisions. And so I would stand in a store, J. Crew, and be like, I, I just want these earrings. I just want these earrings. And I would say to myself, what do you want them for? What are they going to change? What are you feeling? Like, I, I mean, I would stop and just spend 10 minutes with this, these pair of earrings. And just, I was noticing like, you think it's going to fill you up or make you happy, or it's going to meet this craving. But then I also was mindful in the times where I would buy that. I would ignore that voice. I Mm. noticed I felt guilty after. I knew Mm. I shouldn't, like I knew I, it wasn't in line with kind of our goals to save for a house. So I was like, I feel guilty. I feel ashamed. I feel regretful. So all, it was paying more attention to all of that around my consumption and then starting to put the pieces together. Mm. And so one of the things in that, you know, I love some of the, the minimalism guides out there, how, how they've acknowledged, like they've, they've kind of stopped wanting. Mm-hmm. I am not there yet. Like I still very much have to fight that urge, mm-hmm. but you know, I kind of mentioned how I, I try to talk to myself more and kind of reason with this part of my brain. And so one of the ways that I do that, I'll be standing in Target. This happened after the holidays, you know, everything's 75% off and I have all these wrapping paper and all of a sudden I look at them and I'm like, I don't need this. Like I, Allison, you have enough. You have enough. And I mean, this is a five minute conversation in the checkout with myself. And I put them back and my husband's like, Allison, they're like five. I'm like, that's not the point. I don't need them. They're not going to change anything. I have enough. And so that's kind of one of my mantras for challenging unconscious consumption and just thinking spend get more buy yeah you know what we did two we've done it for two christmases now we've actually stopped buying christmas gifts Mm. and so instead what we do is um what the mom coin term is experiential christmases so um we went we were in florida so uh last year well the year before and we went to the keys and we went snorkeling um you know, this year we went to Canada uh, over the spring break. Some of the kids are in different places at different times. So we kind of do different things. But um, when all the kids were at Christmas this year, we didn't, we didn't have an opportunity to go somewhere. So what we did was games. So we bought different games and we had, I'll tell you what, I don't know if you've ever had $10 table tennis and in a competitive family with my daughter's fiance, there were six of us. And so there was brackets and there was trash talk and it was the yes. most fun <laughs> in Bangladesh or battle. What's that word? Balderdash and yes. Yes. the different things. And I'll tell you what the memories that are created. Plus it just make great photo ops for Facebook when you're taping off 
they taped off a court and on the floor. It was just really funny. Those are the things I think that are, um, it's a big difference than, you know, the Christmases before everyone had everything that they wanted. If they had said they wanted a Mac computer or this or that or camera or video game, you know, something I made sure that they had it previously. That was my always thought because they won't be happy unless they have mm. what they really, because coming from a growing up for wanting then you can give. So you kind of go to the extremes yeah. from one to the other. And so that is a, actually a great um, conversation like you're having with yourself is like, they have enough and they're going to be okay. And they're still going to love you. You have enough of yourself to give to them without buying stuff for them. Yeah. So it wasn't so much what I'd buy for myself it's what I buy for others. And yes. so that really is because they won't love you otherwise, right? This is, <laughs> yes. so it really was a really interesting, um, minimalism allowed me to work through so many interesting habits and what I was doing even in my own presence. Obviously, I'm always a work in progress, but it's been really interesting. But I love how you said it. You have enough. Yeah. You are enough. Yes. And I, that conversation you have with yourself before you buy something or- yes you think that you need it or you come up with the excuse you there's the rationalization. Mm. I need another bite to eat. Yep. Are you hungry? Someone, I think it was Dr. Carol Dweck. Where was I reading that? Oh, I was listening to a Ted. I love Ted talks. Like I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm also an editor of medical journal. And um, so I love science as well. Anyway, so I was listening to a Ted talk and it was Dr. Carol Dweck. That's why I bought her book mindset but she was talking about that mindful smoking and they found out that people, it wasn't, you were saying to stop, but they're saying, well, notice what you were doing while you're smoking. And, you know, they mentioned this one lady that said it was tasted horrible. And then she just started thinking about what was really, why was she smoking? And she just, that conversation, right. With yourself. And they had a huge success rate of stopping smoking because they made it mindful smoking. Mm -hmm. I, you know, that's so funny that you say that. I, I had a client once who, who was, she, I mean, she was a pretty heavy smoker and was like, I don't want to quit. I don't want to quit. And as a healthcare provider, I know it's not helpful for me to be like, well, you should quit. Like if she doesn't want to make that change, she's not ready. It, she's not there, but she said, I want to cut down. How could I do that? So we kind of reviewed her habits and I realized that she would smoke two or three cigarettes at a time without really paying attention. And in my head, I'm like, okay, I'm not to encourage her to do mindful smoking. Like, is this, is this wrong? Like it was confusing in my head. And for a minute it was like, no, because if she could smoke one and really pay attention and it's okay if, if she enjoys it, like I'd rather her enjoy one than three. Mm -hmm. And so it was the idea that she, she was able to cut down on her smoking because it was like, I only needed three because I didn't pay attention to the first two and a half. Mm. But when I actually paid attention, one was enough. Mm. And so, yeah, so much, same thing with, I don't, I don't really, it, I'm sure with some exceptions, you're the expert here, but I don't know that it's helpful for clients or humans to identify like good and bad foods. Mm. And so, you know, I think there's certainly, <laughs> we'll have a conversation about, well, maybe healthy versus unhealthy, but yeah, we could talk about that for sure. Yeah, Healthy versus unhealthy or mm -hmm. good for my body, not so good for my body. Mm -hmm. But I think anytime something, you know, 
the idea of, okay, so if you're really thoughtful and you decide you want that cookie, how can we help you be mindful while you eat that cookie? Let's help you savor it. Because if you're only going to have one cookie a week, man, let's help you love that cookie or, mm-hmm. or whatever. If you're going to enjoy one cup of coffee in the morning, let's help you really enjoy it. Pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my, the way we do, cause I usually, I mean, I'm more, I'm dealing with people who've had heart attacks and diabetes and hypertension, massively obese. So there's a, there's a health risk. And so a lot of my conversation around food is, and, and I didn't really understand food addiction mm-hmm. until, and, and there's so much to it. It's a very complex thing, right? Cause you have to eat. <laughs> and so, and we live in a very toxic society as far as food is concerned. Um, you know, there certainly are, we talk about green light and yellow light and red light foods because some people, as you know, as a psychologist can't consume even a small amount of sugar or whatever, cause it'll send them on a binge. Those are the extremes. The majority of us are just making, like you said, not mindful choices about what we're eating because we're driving through <laughs> the fast food place, we're shoving down food. We don't even know what we just consumed, much mm-hmm. less gave it a thought as to what it's doing to our long-term health. Yes. And so my idea is when I'm working with patients is the educational component of this. What are these food choices doing to you? And then understanding where your food's coming from. So what happens when you eat you know, dairy products from a cow versus almond milk? You know, What are the differences here? Um, why did you develop type two diabetes and educating them and understanding it's kind of like being mindful of the food, right? And what I find is the majority of people will gravitate towards wanting to make healthier choices, but I have to align that with, because it's one thing to say, because food is so an emotional and there's such a connection. I have to align the better food choices with a better health outcome, but they have to put something on it. That's personal. So, um, for example, I had, and I'm sure she won't, she, I'm going to be interviewing her on the podcast, but uh, one of the patients that I worked with in Florida, she started out at 506 pounds. She's lost 200 pounds in 14 months. And what's incredible, so you have a lifetime of poor food choices, but a huge emotional trauma. But the first time I ever met her, she's so funny and just a delightful person. Um, she goes, you know what? I've always wanted to be a runner. I said, you will be. You know, so what we've done now is we've taken those goals of healthy and that outcome is going to be, I'm going to run a race someday. And she's already moving in that direction. And I promised I would run with her. Mm -hmm. And so that is the really cool thing is, okay, I want to go, like I had a patient in Colorado right there. She wanted to fly in one seat Mm -hmm. to see her daughter in Norway, but she was so heavy. She took up two seats. I mean, think about that. I mean, in this same patient who's lost the 200 pounds, we celebrated when she could actually put the seatbelt and close the Mm seatbelt. I mean, those things we take for granted. So what, what I have done is that I found if we put a positive association with that or some, a future forecasting self, right? You're, you're looking at yourself and now how do we get there? Um, So that is what I found. That's kind of how we discuss foods. Now I will tell people food. And I don't, I don't look at moderation. I tell people moderation kills because most of the time I have people who are sick and they can't, they, you know, if you're a younger person and you dive into some processed food every once in a while or whatever, that's fine. Um, but when I have someone who's had, 
you know, cabbage or bypass surgery for blood for vessel disease and they're 60 years old and they're on four blood pressure pills and diabetic. Yes. I can't, I have to tell you that food will kill you. <laughs> so yeah. that's yeah. how I have to, I have to be a little bit more um, rigid for, yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah. 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 So there's, but yeah, I agree what you're saying good or bad because it almost thinks it makes it pulls people when you say bad, right? Almost. Yes. Yeah. And it's that, it's that same idea of there's good and bad emotions. Like, no, there's right. just there's emotions. And I think, yeah, sometimes us putting those labels on them just mm-hmm. it makes it more, more challenging for ourselves. Just yeah. Stuff. Yeah. And it's okay. I guess it's just telling yourself it's okay to experience those emotions, but why are you experiencing the emotions? Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I did have someone ask me once, and I would like to get your opinion if I felt um, like it was okay to have guilt. And I found that really interesting because um, in our household growing up when I was a kid, the you know guilt complex, like, um, boy, there were certain members in my household that were very good at making you feel guilty and you felt spurred to do something based on that. But I said, you know what? I, I don't think it's good to use it as a weapon, <laughs> but I think it certainly actually is there for a reason. Um, I think guilt is there to guide us in our moral decisions. Um, but that was my, she goes, and this person got kind of upset with me. She's like, but then that leads to shame and um, different things. It's like, I, I didn't say guilt was shame. You can't equate the two. Like you were saying, like there's shades, right? I think guilt, how you respond to it, how you process it, can lead to shame or guilt can go, wow, I shouldn't have eaten that third cookie. I'm not going to do that again. Absolutely. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I think this is something I want to say Brene Brown talks about. Mm, she's one of my favorites. <laughs> she's, she's, she's great. Mm-hmm. Um, so guilt is that acknowledgement of I, I did something that sort of isn't congruent with my values. Mm. So I've really been on this clean eating or, you know, this plan and I, I, I ate a cheeseburger. Like, Oh, like I did not want, I feel guilty. That's not, that's not in line with my values. I lashed out at my husband because I was tired. Like that's not in, I I know that's not in line with who I am and how I want to approach relationships. So to me, guilt is acknowledging I, I, I didn't do what I wanted to do or what I know is consistent with my values. I feel guilty mm. about that. To me, that's okay. That's okay to feel that way because sometimes we, we do things that aren't, aren't, aren't great. Mm-hmm. Shame is when it turns into, because I did that, I'm a bad person. Mm-hmm. I'm a failure. I'm a terrible partner. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to get the hang of this eating thing. I suck. That is then the shame piece. And shame is not helpful for us. Shame is so heavy and weighs us down. But I think guilt, I, I think guilt, you know, within read, like, I think guilt can be okay. I actually think if, if we lash out at someone and then we say, oh, well, like, I don't think that's healthy either. I think it, mm-hmm. guilt is also saying, I want to do something. That's not how I want to do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, disappointed, bummed, whatever, that that's how I responded. Yeah. Cause I think that's important in part tool of parenting in a positive way. So, you know, as you have children and they grow into teen years and that type of thing, what I found is that guilt is an important thing to understand. For example, I had, I have three amazing kids. Don't get me wrong. I really had minimal trouble with any of them. So I was actually pretty blessed, 
But for example, when my daughter, who's 24 now, she was, I believe, in fourth or fifth grade. Great kid, straight A's, never had a problem. Well, I get a note. And they understand we had very strict rules um, about behavior. They expect you to represent a Morris family well. If you do something wrong, there will be consequences. And that's just the way it is. Um, now, if there's extenuating circumstances, of course, we're understanding. But Emily got in trouble because she accepted a note from someone. She knew that was against the rules, but she took the note and opened it and got in trouble, got caught. And it got sent home a note from school. And I was like, no, this is unacceptable. Now what we're going to do is you're going to understand. And she felt guilty, bad about it. So, but now you're going to understand there are consequences and that, that guilt is going to teach you to do the right thing. So what we did is we went to the school. She apologized to the teacher. The teacher looked at me like I was a crazy parent. Like <laughs> no parent ever brings that. I was like, well, my child will not break the rules. She understands. She goes, but mom, all I do is accept them. I said, Emily, it doesn't matter there is a disruption in class and you knew better. So you need to understand there are rules for a reason and you will respect authority and you'll respect those decisions. Someday you'll understand or you go to a psychologist and work this out. <laughs> so, you know, this is a reason. And, um, you know what, really, I never had a problem ever again with that. I said, well, what if my friend does it again? I said, well, let's work that through. What would you do? You say, I'm not taking it. Sure. And so that's all you have to do. You don't have yeah. to feel pressured because there's a consequence to it. So do you want to pay the consequence price or not? So that was how we looked at guilt in the sense of there are consequences to those actions. Not, you know, because you feel it, is it, it's okay, but let's learn to work through it. But there are consequences for our decisions. Absolutely. Heart attack is, for example, repetitive poor choices and yeah. food. That's how I did it with parenting and it's worked out pretty well, at least for my kids. Um, but yeah, it was really fascinating. Um, tell me just to finish, I know I've kept you. Um, one thing was that you mentioned buzzwords and I really like that phrase buzzwords. So what are your buzzwords and tell us where did that come from? So for me, buzzwords, it's like the idea, I want to keep this concept or this thing in the front of my mind. I want it mm -hmm. to guide me. And in moments of decision, I want those words to be a reminder which way to move. Mm -hmm. So I think the, th you know, they, they change given the season of my life, but I think kind of the three biggest ones right now, and this one has always been there for me, is authenticity. I want to be true to myself and all my quirks and my person, like I just want to be me. And for mm -hmm. a long time, especially in my training and early career, I thought that being a psychologist, you know, meant I had to look, talk, act a certain way. And I think I've really just learned like, I'm going to do me. And if it works for people, awesome. And if it doesn't, cool. I'm not I'm not a good fit for them. And whether that's in friendship or with my clients or whatever. So I, authenticity is a huge one. So in moments where I'm kind of like, I don't know, should I speak up or not? I, I kind of lean to that word. Mm -hmm. Another one is intentionality, which I mentioned earlier, which is just that idea of we can't control everything around us, but we do have a choice in how we respond. Mm -hmm. And so slowing down and really being thoughtful and intentional about how I live my life. Can't control everything. Kind of wish I could, um, <laughs> but I want to be thoughtful about how I respond. I get a say in that. And so really trying to be intentional. And then the third one, which is 
honestly, I get really excited talking about it. It's changed my life. And that is courage. So it was my buzzword for 2017. It was at my mantra was be courageous. And I think sometimes people, and I'm pretty open about this on my site. I think people are surprised to hear that fear and worry and doubt. There's major players in my life. I don't like making mistakes. I, I want certain like, but I just realized that holds us back so much. Mm. And so I sort of said for a whole year, like, I'm going to be courageous. It's not about not being afraid. I'm going to be terrified, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to be unsure and I'm going to take a step. I'm going to not totally know, but I'm going to trust myself. I'm going to be courageous. And so like all 2017, I did that. And it was one of the best years of my life. Be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Absolutely. (laughs) I think, you know, Everything good is on the other side of of our comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And I knew that up here for Mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. But by practicing that almost in a way that was kind of radical, it it allowed me to actually see that, right? It's Mm -hmm. one thing to like know that, but to actually see that and all the good stuff, some, you know, some did some things they didn't work out, but even when they didn't work out, I would learn something. So I would say, yeah. And the, you know, since then I just, I feel like courage is, is a big thing for me. I'm going to be afraid. I'm going to do it anyway. What, give us an example of where you had to say, nope, I'm going to be courageous. Yeah. So, uh, I went to the women's March in Washington last year and I decided at the last minute and I was like, should I do like, I'm going to be courageous. And then I thought, I don't know, should I post this on my social media? Cause I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear people's negative comments. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to be courageous. I, my practice has just been open for about a year. I was not ready to open the practice. I probably, you know, I think you're supposed to save for six months. Nope. I decided like really quickly, like I'm tired of working for somebody else. I'm going to do it. That was a huge be courageous. Um, We traveled to Italy last summer and there were so many like micro moments where it was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not sure this is how you say the word. But I was like, I'm going to do it. And so mm-hmm. it's just all these from little things to like really big things that, yeah. And it's, again, it just works out the same muscle. So it does get easier or you just get more comfortable with being uncomfortable. <laughs> you, realize, you know, discomfort isn't going to kill you. It's, gonna it, be it's kind of funny. You start to crave it. Oh Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yes. So I went, um, so my husband and I got married the week before we finished college. So we were young. Um, he was my first boyfriend, God bless him. Mm -hmm. And so we got married. I had three kids under four years old in four, in four years. Um, I started medical school six years later. So I stayed home. I went to school. They were five, three and 10 months. I don't know how many people I said, you can't do this. It's going to be too hard. You're going to fail. You know, just because you got accepted doesn't mean you're going to finish, uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, and so in my mind, some things that happened in my life when I was younger that had already made me resilient to the degree, to the point is like, I don't hear anybody except what's going on up here sometimes mm-hmm. to a detriment sometimes yes. as my husband will attest. And I understand that is a serious fault I'm really working on, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, um, cause I can be really stubborn. And so 
knowing that and understanding that, but it really is true, but it, it pushes you to do those things. I would have never gone to medical school otherwise. If I would have listened to the fearful part of me is like, I'm going to fail. Well, you're like, okay, what if I fail something? Yes. Well, what will happen? Um, you know, there's ways around it. What of this, what of that? There's so many what ifs that are never going to happen. Right. So, um, absolutely. But then you're like, that was so much fun. Let's, what's yeah. the next thing? And, um, it really is. Like, cool. I can't think of a single time that I've heard someone say to me, I regret taking the chance. Right. Absolutely. I think we have regrets in our life, but I don't think I've ever heard someone say, I took a risk and I totally regret it. Even when it doesn't work out, I think people right. are like, well, now I know. Right. Yeah. You're I, never, you're never going to just have that spinning around in your head, right? It's like, yes. gosh, I, you know, I should have done that when I could have. Yes. Um, and I think going back to the becoming minimalist, he put out an article over the weekend and he was talking about jump while you can. Right. So I think that's a brilliant way to look at this is while I'm physically capable, while I'm mentally sound, I'm going to do those things that I feel a calling to do. For me, it's a very spiritual experience because I believe God puts us here all for a reason. So I need to be attuned to the talents and gifts that he gave us. And we put us here not to be afraid, but to live lives with each other, right? And to connect and share. And um, that's exactly right. I love that. Be courageous. I think that's a great mantra for your life, not even just a year. Yes. Yes. And so after this year was over, I was like, do I need a new one? Like, (laughs) yeah, I ended up just like putting a little spin on it, but it's it's the same concept. Yeah. Because, and I, I think as humans, we underestimate our resilience and our ability. And I, I want people to have more faith in themselves. I, I think we, we underestimate what we're capable of. Mm-hmm. Even when you don't know, tr- trust that you will figure it out. Look how much stuff you figured out in your life, you know, up to this point. Right. Exactly. And I think you're exactly right. Right. Because what you were saying is about people don't have enough faith in themselves, but it's so sad when people go through life and they're just existing, right? So they're just doing their day to day. They go to work. They don't, they're not being mindful of what's going on in their life. They're not um, enjoying those moments or saving even the difficult moments, right? So what can I learn from this? Just having a conversation with themselves. I think they're numb to their own thoughts um, unless it's fear, which drives people not to do something or to do something that they don't want to. Um, I think you're exactly right. Um, and it's sad because I see people who make these poor health choices and it, it goes physically, right? So they're, they've made, they think it's normal to be depressed. It's normal. I'm not saying depression, you know, get, you, we're all depressed at some point. Yeah. I mean, that's just a normal feeling, yes. Yes. but they go through life. They think it's normal to just, they fear being fearful. They have fear of being depressed. They fear of being anxious. They're fear of having any negative emotions. Um, and then they make poor, poor food choices and they're sick and they think it's normal to be sick and it's normal to have to go to the doctor. It's normal. This is like, no, there's a better way. I think that's why I enjoy about the, the thriving component of the positive psychology and not think I've never thought of it that way when I was reading um, Dr. Marty Seligman's stuff. And I was like, Whoa, that's good. That's really good. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't, they just don't know how to do it. You know, I, I, I kind of started the website because I had a, a client that acknowledged, like, did I miss this? She's very high performing, high achieving. She was like, 
where did I miss this? And I was like, wait, mm. huh? she's like, where, where was I supposed to learn this? And I kind of realized, yeah, unless, unless you're super into self-help or, you know, you've been in therapy, like, how would you learn about half of this? And I, I think everyone could benefit from therapy, but I don't think we all need to be in therapy all the time. And so that's right. why it's kind of like, yeah, I, that's why I, I'm, I love, I'm proud of the work that I'm putting out because I want people to see you can do it. It, 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 it small changes consistently. That's, that's how I think change happens. Yeah. Cause many small steps make big changes. Right. And so, and that's the one thing I, I think at some point in my future, I'm not, it's not right now, but um, I really want to work on bringing positive psychology into medical school. So my daughter's a first year medical student. Cause I think about um, the things that happen while you're in medical school and it starts laying the foundation for like what I was talking about, the early burnout and the stress and, you know, physicians can lose their license if they seek counseling. Um, so you have to report that. So, you know, there's already a, a legal hindrance to getting help. Um, and so that drives, you know, and then there's always the, I must be able to fix everything. It's almost a God complex is I have to know all the answers. I have to do this. And it's really difficult to be authentic um, in some cases um, as a physician. And so I think if we can build that positive psychology and those skills and the resiliency into medical students, and then they learn to help themselves, like you're talking about, and then it can be transferred to their patients because that's social contagion, right? And they're the, the, the ripple effects. And, um, yeah, so that's, it's so important that people get, understand this message. There's a better way yes. and it's just a matter of seeking the right guidance. So, yes. yeah. and with that, is there anything else when any last tidbits or anything you'd like to share with the audience? I don't think so. I think the biggest <laughs> takeaways are I, I want people to practice pausing and start a gratitude daily gratitude practice. And just think about, yeah, how do you want to feel differently in your life? And then think mm -hmm. about what are ways I can practice that. So don't focus on I want to feel, feel calmer, feel kinder, feel more focused. How can you practice those things? And um, I hope it's okay that I'm doing a shameless plug. Um, but no, yeah, please. Lots oh. of good stuff like that. So yeah, on my website, drallisonanswers.com. Yep. Um, and then there'll, yeah. be a, there'll be a link. Don't worry. Cool. Cool. Yeah, you, you got it. You know what you're doing. Oh yeah, no, you're definitely. So definitely, Dr. Allison um, Answers .com, and there's a link, guys, in the show notes. Um, but absolutely, and I love the idea that you said you had your your word for the mm -hmm. year yeah. because that kind of just, you know, I think the New Year's resolutions maybe it should just be to be more mindful of doing something, and then let those words be your focus. So. I like and, and that. Every day we get a chance to start over. I read a quote that said, like, <laughs> I, I wish I would have done things differently. It's like, awesome. It's a new day. Like, you, <laughs> so don't wait till January. Like, pick a word today, you know, or like, right. if people want to pick a word, like, leave it in the comments or whatever. Like, it's cool. You get to start now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. And honestly, it's funny because um, I was reading, I don't remember it was something in physics, but um, there's really no present moment. That is an actual conjecture that are humans that have created, right? Because our moment of five seconds ago is in our past and everything that I'm speaking is going into the past, but there's also our future in five more seconds. That's our future. So the present moment really doesn't exist because it's either a past or present because it's just a continuum. So it's really interesting 
<laughs> anyway, the present moment is so it's so slim that the minute you try to speak to it, it's gone. It's it's a fluid moment, and so <laughs> and just to throw a little interesting, but it's just it's fascinating. But you're right, be for that focus, it's that constant just reevaluation of things and what's going on. And but I think yeah, I never really understood the word mindfulness until I'd say in the last couple of years and understanding where the minimalist thing, but that is really cool. But you, my dear, have so much to offer. You're going to have an amazing practice and be very helpful to many people. No, I, that's why I invited you. I only invite the most awesome people. So, well, (laughs) um, but absolutely. Um, I think that's fantastic. And like I said, it's Dr. Allison Answers. And um, definitely click on the links, guys, and check her out. And she has a lot of good stuff. And reach out to her, especially if you're in Chicago. But do you do also, do you help people online at all? I don't. There's there's a lot of, not in terms of therapy, um, mm. but that's kind of one of the reasons I created the website is it's a way to gain access to that info without being in therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do travel. I do a lot of like speakings and trainings and workshops cool. and things like that to groups and stuff. So that that's a way too. Awesome. So if they're interested in maybe you coming and presenting to someone locally or their, um, where they work, their employer group or anything like that, they can do reach out to you as well. Absolutely. All that info is on my website, my contact info, all that. Cool. Very cool. Well, thank you again for your time. It was so delightful. And what a, what a great conversation. It was, it made my day. It's it's (laughs) my gratitude list. I'm grateful. Awesome. Mine too. (laughs) You know, that gratitude too, too. Um, I did that for, I think like almost three months straight one time. And what I did was pictures, mm-hmm. um, took photos on my phone and made a little gratitude album. And that was really cool to go back through and see. Yes. Um, you get to yeah. experience them all over. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. but thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks okay. for having me. You're welcome. <laughs>